Hi, and welcome back to the Life in Bomb City podcast. I am Aaron Favor, and I'm joined today with a special guest, uh, Ms. Jackie Kingston. Good morning. Yeah, um, Beth is out today. She has got uh, some prior business to attend to. Uh, this is the first time we've done the podcast without Beth, so I'm hoping that the color is still here uh, because otherwise it can sound drab. And uh, anyway, Beth does bring the light. So anyway, the idea for today's podcast comes out of the 87th legislative session. Um, I've asked Jackie to come up with her top five. Um, originally, the idea was maybe take top five and put them with either a hit from the 80s or a hit from the 90s uh, because there is a lot of angst in that music. But uh, I think probably it's better not to drag uh, some of those bands into into the fray. So They would prefer it that way, I they, think. I think they probably would. Um, so anyway, uh, everything going well? For me, yes. Everything is great. Um, this legislative session, looking particularly at that, and um, I work at KAMR Local 4. Um, I'm the evening anchor there. I anchor, I host Studio 4 in the afternoons. But my favorite show that I get to do every week is called Politics Today. And it's my Sunday morning show, 10 a.m. I record it early. I'm not actually in studio at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, thank goodness. Um, but I get to really do a deep dive into issues that affect my viewers and, and us here on the High Plains um, and what politics means to you, to people who are listening to this, to people who watch my newscasts and watch Politics Today. One of my favorite things that I get to do. And so I'm delighted to get to talk about the legislative session because this is one of the, this is a session, the most recent session that I can remember that we had the least amount of access because of COVID-19. And so much happened that didn't get a whole lot of press that didn't make it really into our collective conscience to consider how important it is. And so I am stoked to, to dive into some of these things uh, with you the, today. Awesome. Do you happen to watch uh, these committee meetings as they're going live, being live streamed in the, you know, once coming out of the session themselves? Aaron, you are overestimating my level of nerdiness okay. uh, in this. Yeah. I, I don't get to do that. I wish I could, but no, but no I don't. Okay, well, that's that's one of my favorite pastimes, and I don't know why that uh, that those meetings drone on and on. Yes, and you know, a lot of times the you know the individuals that are in those meetings, I can tell that they're being droned on and on because <laughs> they're really on their phones, and it's just like in you know Washington, they've got other things on their mind and other things to attend to, but they also have a prior commitment. Um, to this committee meeting, which mm -hmm. is an incredibly important part of what they do. Right. So, I mean, it's interesting on one hand for the in the sense that our our representatives' committee meetings are so incredibly uh, part of the intricacies of the job, but on the other hand, it's also interesting that they are so. Uh, long and drab and particularly because of the testimonies. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm not knocking the testimonies. They're a very important part of a democracy, sure. uh, being able to voice them there in the session rather than prior to, or just making sure your voice is heard before the people that are making the decisions, right. but they can 
they can become boring, kind of like a lecture. Like I can say this class is really interesting and I'm sure, I'm sure I've had plenty of students that say, you know, I really like, I think he's a, probably a good person, <laughs> but yeah. you know, I wish that he would reform this lesson or whatever so that he wasn't talking so much. Uh, and uh, I think that it's, it's a fair, I think it's a fair critique to make, but I don't, typically try to make critiques about legislative sessions, especially in Texas. We only have them once every two years. Right. And so I really wouldn't appreciate what we've got. I want to ask you about um, those committee meetings this year as you, at this session rather, as you watch them. Were they different because of COVID? It feels like, so, so media access was different this year because of COVID. Panhandle days got canceled. We usually go up there as a group, go down there to Austin as a group, uh, the mayor and, and the convention and visitors council and all, you know, these, these different groups will go down there and we meet with our legislators and they are lobbying for things. And I get to go and cover it as a news story, which is super great. This year, because of the regulations that were in place uh, because of COVID, we weren't able to go. The whole thing was canceled. And so I wonder about those committee meetings. Did they look and feel different this time? Were they more reliant on the internet? Were they Zooming people in? How did it go this session? There weren't Zooming people in mm. uh, so so much. I didn't see a lot of that. Um, and from the live stream, I mean, they had everybody obviously situated appropriately with the health standards, you know, um, but the num- the level of of I, I just, I'm a big believer, and this is going to sound kind of strange. I'm a big believer in closed sessions. Hmm. And I know they have a lot of those, yeah. but I think they should have more. Because otherwise it gets our legislatures, it keeps them up there into the dark hours of the evening, into the twilight, and into the early morning. And if we're going to have public testimony, uh, and lots of it, and we had a lot to say also, not just with... Uh, all the social justice things that went on sure. but with the um, the public health issues that were going on and uh, and everything in between from businesses being closed to uh, to economics and ex- whether or not we're going to accept federal aid right. to to international trade out. yeah mm-hmm. the international trade ser- it was a serious issue with mm-hmm. energy um, and that had the role that that played in the in the election and so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that those those are all valid points um, kind of pertaining to the question of whether or not this session was any different. Are the issues the same? Yeah. Was the intensity and maybe not the saliency, but yeah, the intensity for this year. We'll see if they're salient, I guess. Yeah. And I think I think that's an interesting point that you make. These kind of those those committee hearings, which, again, really important and and tune inable if you happen to have six hours on a Tuesday where you can just have it on in the background where you can be listening for this or you can go back and watch it. But they tend to be really long and drawn out because when you get a hot button issue like like a social justice movement or the energy grid, you know, when you when you start talking to people who have been affected by these things dramatically in their day to day life and they say, yes, I want to address my representation in the state legislature and make sure that my voice is heard, my experience matters, they tend to drag on. You know, they tend to take hours and days at a time. And so it's interesting, those rules around around what can be said in those meetings and open access in that way. If you're looking for a certain person who has testified in front of these committees, as I have done, um, checking on uh, people who've run for office and saying that they've they've testified, you know, if you're looking through 
and and the legislature has these all on their website. But if you're looking through specific committee meetings and looking for one person's testimony, you got to watch the whole thing. And it's so so the access is there, but it takes a certain amount of privilege of time um, to be able to watch those things and to to engage in that way. Yeah, certainly. And, and and there's a big difference between someone who is asked to testify specifically on a very specific issue to convey their experience about a health issue right. or their uh, struggle with, you know, with uh, discrimination or whatever the case may be. And it's different when people want to get up there and just, you know, drone on about, you know, why everything is broken. Yeah, in I the agree. World, mm-hmm. you know, but. Keeping things in... in Topical. Yes. Top five. We're going to do the high fidelity thing. So uh, high fidelity uh, being a reference to the movie uh, from the John Cusack movie, but they just redid it on Hulu. Did you watch the Hulu? With Zoe Kravitz? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have not watched it. Okay. No. And I probably, honestly, I've probably not seen the movie. Okay. Okay. With John Cusack. Okay. Well, he has top five everything. Top five records. Top five. And originally it's a, is it Nick Hornsby that wrote the book? In the 90s, I think that's what it was. And anyway, I believe you. This is one of the first <laughs> movies that I ever saw Jack Black in. And so it was hysterical. I haven't seen him lately, but I hope he's doing well. I mean, so anyway, that being said, though. He went uh, viral during the pandemic for did, that video. He did He did like a video, like a song. He like, it, it was hilarious. Me. I'll send it to you. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so John Cusack does all these top fives. He has he has a record label called Top Five Records. And uh, without giving anything away from the movie, because I know all of our listeners are going to go out and, and rent it from the public library, um, the, uh, the big thing is, you know, top five everything. They have top five uh, songs on a day that's rainy, top five songs for a funeral, top five songs for, you know, when the thermostat's too hot, things like that. So what are the top five uh, things that you put down from the uh, legislative session, 87th? 87th legislative session. It's so confusing. Your, your listeners already know this, but it was, it was a weird year. Um, and the, <laughs> the, the way to talk about the legislative session involving legislators who put forth legislation, um, we make it as confusing as possible. But I, I defer to the governor. Uh, because I could not choose five that I felt like I was, you know, and, and being a journalist, it's important to me to remain non-biased and remain um, apolitical. And so what I went with are the five that the governor uh, has tweeted about, that he has talked about were some of his priorities during the session that he is most proud of uh, during the session, knowing that we're going into a special session soon. And then I replaced one with another um, because I think it's topical pertinent um, and especially to us here on the high plains. And so um, my top five from the governor, which he tweeted um, on May 31st. So right after the session ended, um, he tweeted this session, we passed legislation to secure our border, support our police, expand second to a hashtag to a right, second amendment rights, defend religious liberty protect life. It was one of the most conservative sessions our state has ever seen. So Abbott tweeted that. So I'll go with those. Secure the border, support police, as he puts it, expand Second Amendment rights, gun legislation, um, protect life. And then I'm going to I'm going to slide 
HB5 in there, which has to do with rural broadband, uh, which I think is really important to our area. Those are really good. Those are all really good. Um, I was thinking about the the broadband the other day, actually. Uh, I, I set some deer, some trail cams out, and I was hoping that, you know, the cellular would actually pick up in mm-hmm. some of the some of the more rural parts of our of our state. And um, I'm not sure that it's going to it's going to work. You know, mm-hmm. it's a. It's going to be kind of a little bit strained, but it'll be good. Well, it's, it's going to be really good. I think that HB5 is particularly interesting because in the last legislative session in, in 86, I talked with Representative For Price about what his priorities were. And he talked a lot about, interestingly, and this is, you know, th- consider this is two years ago. This is pre-pandemic. He was talking about access to health care in our rural communities. And one of his through lines in that, one of the things that he said was really important was having access to the internet, was bringing the internet to people. Right. So they had access to telemedicine. Little did we know in 2020, all of us would need access to that in various ways in the most important way possible, right? Because we couldn't physically get to the doctor in a lot of cases, but we needed that care. And so telemedicine became really important. Additionally, with, with rural broadband expansion, we learned during the pandemic, during 2020, that students need access to reliable and good high-speed internet, where they can stream lessons, where they can log on, where they can be engaged in their classrooms from home. We learned how important that is for our community. And what I'm afraid that we're seeing with the star testing results that have come out now, and which, which, was, which was forecast by people who are in the education agency, we knew there was going to be some some educational consequences to the pandemic with the star testing results. We're starting to see the baseline of how bad that is because students were less engaged when they were at home and, and that's not their fault and it's not their teacher's fault. And it's not their parents' fault. We were all going through a pandemic. You know, we were all living through this once in a lifetime, terrible thing. And of course, math and science weren't really important to us during that. They were, but just getting through the day was really important and dealing with that. And so I think that rural broadband and expanding that access is super important, especially during the pandemic, but moving forward as well as, as education changes and as we try and catch those students up to a, a positive academic environment and set them up for success in the future. Being in higher education, um, you know how important that is, that, that students have that firm foundation of, of those, those core uh, educational issues, math, science, reading, you know, all of those things are so, so important. And so if we can't catch our students up for that, I worry about the long tail effects of that. So I think that the broadband access HB5 is really super important in that way. That's a really good, uh, that's a good point, uh, for a couple of reasons, but the, the, I was supposed that the, the one that strikes out strikes me the most is the fact that in life, you know, like typically my experiences that I think of as the most formative, I don't realize in the moment, I always realize them later. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's just part of the growth process. Um, and so if I was 16 years old going through the pandemic, uh, and I'm just having, I'm going to definitely have to use my imagination here because that was a long time <laughs> ago. But I will say that if I were to go back in time and say, I'm 16 years old and this pandemic is going on, uh, I think that maybe in when I was 22 or 23 and when I started back in school, maybe it was, maybe it would be a, an interesting entry point 
for me to go back into education or into higher ed if I was a senior uh, and look at the world maybe a little bit differently than I did before, understanding the impacts of outside events Mm -hmm. coming in and disrupting and interrupting my plans. You know, because when you're 16, your plans are pretty much to hang out with your friends uh, if you have them. And if not, then to play guitar or, you know, get on stage or play football or, you know, that's that dominates your life. The extracurriculars are more important. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's something, you know, but, for a lot of us. Yeah, for a lot of us. Yeah. And then when we get to the uh, other side of that, you know, even if somebody was like to go to enjoyed going to concerts or something like that, you know, if you don't own a lot of land um, or someone likes to hunt, if you don't own a lot of land, you don't have access to some of those things, right? No big deal. It's not a have or have not type of thing. It's just kind of, or maybe it is, but not one that we should fret over. Um, it's a private property rights issue, but, uh, at the same time, it is one that can change and shape the way we evaluate and think about the world and therefore maybe reprioritize the things that we really want out of life. So in the future, I, I imagine that we're going to have a drastically, um, robust, uh, public health surveillance system, mm-hmm. um, which is going to require lots of internet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have uh, some incredible uh, young people going into the uh, the world of medicine, uh, and you know, right now there's a, a high demand for that, but less so into the maybe the the, the standard medical practice world of doctors. And more into the, like the technocrats or bureaucrats of doctors, you know, like an epidemic intelligence service officer mm-hmm. with the CDC or yeah. something like that. And maybe those would be the more robust things. But anyway, I mean, it is interesting because all of those jobs require really good Internet. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, if I remember, I mean, for price was really or Representative Price was very much ahead and prescient with this. Um, not prescient. He didn't foreknow what was going on. Certainly. But he was... Uh, ahead of the curve here, uh, knowing what needed to happen. I think pretty much uh, across the board with uh, mental health issues. Right. Um, but the but the other thing is that you know they all require really good access to internet, mm-hmm. and we might complain about the internet, but I mean if we don't have access to it, we are really uh, in a position where we can't pay bills. We right. can't. I mean, do a lot of things. And think about, you know, how, how that affects adults. And this is, I don't want to spend the entire time that we have talking about um, the internet. But another point that I, I want to make about this is that it's, when we think about rural broadband, we think about, I think about uh, the the Perrytons of the world and the Ockletree counties and the, you know, all of these kind of far and away places, far and away because we're in the Texas Panhandle, everything is kind of far and away. So you think about these kind of out of pocket places, these, you know, two hours to get to places from Amarillo. But really, we have to consider as well that there are places in Amarillo, in Amarillo City proper, that do not have good internet that do not have access to reliable, high-speed internet, high-quality internet. And I think that's something that city leaders are looking at as we consider using um, the American Rescue Plan funds that we're getting and and other funds from other places um, t- to expand that and to make sure that our students do have... Uh, Emerald College is super involved in that because we, we recognize how important that is, not only for the places, uh, far-flung places in, on the High Plains, but for these 
the places that are in municipalities that also don't have reliable internet. You know, during during the the thick of the pandemic, Amarillo uh, ISD was like driving buses to places that you know served as a as a a, a place where people could go and have internet. Here in the city, this is this is not something that's you know far and away from where we are. This is something happening in our own backyards. And I think Emerald College, um, to be completely biased and completely a cheerleader for AC, um, is is really focusing on that and and bringing that technology to people in our community. And I'm glad that AC is focused on that, along with our other educational leaders in our community and city leaders as well. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. So the first one that I did. So. Do you want to do it like this? Or do you want to do back and forth like this? Certainly. Okay, because I'll let you roll through this five thing. Uh, we can talk about yours for, I mean, all of them. <laughs> I don't, it's not going to hurt my feelings. No, I would love to, I, I want, I want you okay. to do Okay, I did the ports to planes, um, oh, yeah. creation of the advisory committee, um, uh, SB 1474. I think we have, um, I got online and moved and found a, uh, this, uh, really great um, website, um, just about the national level. <clears throat> this coalition alliance that's that is out there for the ports to planes, uh, where I mean, in Texas we focus on Laredo, pretty much all the way to North uh, Panhandle, the Northern Panhandle. Um, however, at the national level um, and the federal level, they look at this being something that will be segment. I mean, segmented all the way up to the Canadian border. Mm -hmm. That's not Canadian, Texas, the Canadian border. And, uh, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to go through the Dakotas, I believe Colorado, and then eventually, uh, Nebraska, Montana, I'm sorry. Um, maybe both. Um, (laughs) but it's, I mean, it's an interesting concept because this is something that's been going on. It's not new five years old, uh, or six years old. I'm sure they've been studying it for a lot longer than that, given what I've learned about the strategic vision of Amarillo and how long that has taken for to come really come into fruition and what we know about public policy, how long it takes to put together budgets and all those other things, prepare people, demonstrate needs, all those things that you need to do whenever you're really putting together a good plan. But I mean, I-27, how useful is that going to be expansion of I-27? So in our reporting about the ports to planes, a couple of, of really interesting points about that. I'm glad that you brought this up because it is so important to our area. And it's something that I don't know that if you are not involved in, you know, transportation or economy, or specifically, you know, commerce, like you probably haven't considered how important that is. Um, but it is so, so important. And people have been talking about people, uh, legislators and city planners and municipalities and, and state leaders and all, have been talking about Ports of Plains since the 90s. This has been happening for years, nearly 30 years we've been talking about ports to planes. So this advisory committee coming out of this legislative session is certainly a step in the direction of expanding I-27 and completing that project after all these years. So I'm super excited about that. It's so important to our area, not only Amarillo, but also Lubbock and all of the all of the towns that, that I-27 will hit along the way. Expanding I-27 means that bigger, um, larger sort of, uh, larger sort of freight 
can be transported, which means more trucks will be on our roads, which means more people will be driving through our city, which means more people are stopping and spending money, right? And, and, and hanging out maybe for the night, maybe longer and spending that money and putting money into, um, our coffers as far as hotel occupancy tax and others go, um, and, and using, those roads and bridges and the infrastructure that we have to have to support the ports to planes. So this is why it's taking like 30 years to do because there are so many things to think about and so much collaboration from not only cities, counties, you've got, you know, state and federal agencies that all have to work together on this. But if this can be done and the advisory committee is going to start meeting before the end of the year, but has not been named yet, um, they have not decided exactly who will be involved in that, but you can imagine that it'll be somebody, you know, the city manager, maybe a mayor from Lubbock, um, legislators from that area, legislators from our area, city manager, mayor, you know, all people, you know, who are, who will be involved in this, um, taking all of those things into consideration and offering their advice. Did you head this, I mean, were you, a, were you a project leader here because you just named <laughs> off the name, the people that were actually going to be on this sucker. And I mean, it is going to be a city, the city managers or like they can have, uh, you know, someone who is, it's not going to be probably a legislator, but they're going to be listening very closely to what they have to say. Mayoral, uh, perspectives, mm -hmm. um, on that stuff. And, uh, they have them designated by County, um, all the way down. It's going to be really interesting. I, I want, I want to hear the, I was looking forward to hearing small the some of the things on the the creation of this uh, the committee on mass violence and what they mm -hmm. were planning on doing. However, uh, this would also be a really interesting public hearing thing mm -hmm. to because I want to hear all of the agribusiness people coming out and talking about what it is that they what are their interests in this is what are the energy interests in this. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder about the. The potential for a pipeline, some of the other potentialities uh, because of the uh, some things that are other that are going on in the country, uh, the Keystone uh, pipeline and some right. other things that have been held up and uh, what's going on in Europe, you know. Uh, so we have I mean, Texas is a great state. I agree with that. I love I love this state, man. Like we can I mean, we can hammer out everything. And I love the fact that also. Um, it can be it can be troublesome, but we also, even though we meet once every two years, it allows us to take a look at the policies that we're putting and putting into place and not have too short-sighted of a vision of it and still come back long enough. It can be frustrating though, right? I mean, it takes time to gather data. And as we, I mean, we're both students also, uh, not just of the news, but uh, I try to be less of a student of the news, no offense, and more a student of like the the actual the data, I so to speak. Why. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, that is that is absolutely important to to what legislators do, and I think it's why they have such a, in my mind, an enviable position when they have staffers that can walk down and like you know produce these reports and do research for them all the time. You know, I I, I would be the biggest nerd. Um, ever in the history of of congressional of, staffers of congressional staffers <laughs> yeah. i mean but, i mean even at the the national level having access to crs i mean yeah they're great professionals no doubt about it but mm. a total i mean their whole existence is to research 
cool stuff mm -hmm. and sometimes not so cool stuff because somebody asked them to. And so important that that job is so important. And I think that we've we've discovered, you know, when you when you talk about these issues and certainly our legislators know that because they rely on those um, documents and and research that those people have done. So, so important to be the person who can get into the weeds on these things and to figure those things out. The, the last thing I want to say about Ports to Plains, Aaron, is that I consider when we when we're talking about commerce and and the importance of of commerce through our area through the high plains particularly i think about the origins of our city think about cattle drives think about why amarillo was so important when we got the railroad it made the town this is why ports to plains is so important this is the modern day you know railway that we are that we are able to access that commerce and, and maybe that's a bit of a leap but i think it's super important for our city and and the economic implications are massive right uh great summation it's uh what's next so next for me um we i think you know we've kind of talked about the social justice movement we've kind of talked about those type of things and i think that that really ties into the next two topics that the governor um, that the governor said were were some of his um, the things that he was bragging about after the session ended, um, and I think that's expanding Second Amendment rights, and I think it's supporting our police force. Right. So with the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, after George Floyd was killed, and um, the trial that went on this year and the conviction and the, the sentencing that has just happened as well. You know, this has been top of mind throughout the pandemic. It is incredible to me to look back at the past two years and to consider the staying power of that movement throughout against all odds of having the pandemic happening where we weren't, you know, recommended to gather in large crowds, but, but the black lives matter movement was still so present during that and did not give up. And so, you know, not saying good one way or the other, but saying that it's incredible to look at an organization that can be that, um, that relevant during a global pandemic where we're all, you know, freaking out about other things. Um, so just the fact that they were still around is super important. But I think that that kind of translated into the legislative session through those things, right? Because we had cities like Houston and Austin talking about answering the call to defund the police. That was the big call in, in, in some points um, during that, that movement, the conversation surrounding our police force and policing our police force and making sure that um, people are are safe and that our police force is not using excessive force and is not um, you know and 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 to are held account for what they're what they're doing um, to people as we saw in, in with Derek Chauvin and, and George Floyd um, and so that was kind of the impetus of these expanding Second Amendment rights and um, supporting our police as the governor has put forward because what several pieces of legislation ultimately did was say, no, Austin, no, Houston, you guys are above 250,000 people and you cannot remove funding from the police or you'll face these penalties from the state. You know, so these the more liberal, maybe um, cities in our in our state were considering that the, and and the legislature stepped in and said, uh, no, you will not do that. You will not defund the police force in Texas. So I thought that was really interesting. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Uh, when 
we're always having this debate about um, the legislature and, and rural and, and urban areas. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably one of the more superficial things that we talk about when we talk about representation in Texas. Mm-hmm. It's still really important east of I-35 and the, the you know the the urban triangle and all those all those different things that we 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 talk about a lot, you know. But I'm curious, you know, about uh, the relevance of of certain things like. For instance, um, yeah, I mean, I agree that that was a, a push to 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 say, nah, I mean, some of the more progressively and, and progressive and liberal uh, people of living in uh, in some of those areas mm-hmm. um, might say this is not a, a good way to run the state, mm-hmm. right? And uh, yet it's also kind of a safeguard, right, to prevent part of the population from maybe uh, saying something about some of the more rural parts of, of those same communities. So what I mean is when I say that a city outside of Round Rock, for example, um, just to kind of create a straw man, um, and I do that once every episode. I've got to create at least one straw man. Uh, I, I know you can't do that so much on the news um, or you're, <laughs> no. you're asked not to, but I do it on this <laughs> podcast all the time. Uh, I remember I remember presidents are great at doing this by the way. I'm not saying I should be president. That would be a bad idea. But <laughs> the uh, but I do like to do it on this podcast. But uh, so just create a straw man there. I mean, if you have some folks out there in uh, in the middle of uh, a rural area 15 miles outside of Round Rock and which sits outside of this major cosmopolitan uh, area. I don't know if Austin's cosmo is it Austin a cosmopolitan city? I think I, it would like to be. I think it would like to be. And if it aspires to be, then I mean, good for it. Sure. It's like being in Hollywood, trying to trying to work your way up. But there's a million actors out there. So true. I get you. Um, so if that's true, uh, wouldn't this would this also be kind of another way to check the government? I mean, to give that kind of power to. Uh, the different institutions, the executive branch and the legislative branch. Uh, even, I mean, well, let's we won't go there. That's out of state. <laughs> yeah, I had another issue on my mind. <laughs> I think I think that's true. I think that this is a it's an interesting, you know, and and considering that the conservative, the more conservative legislators that we have are are often run on platforms of small government. You know, this would seem to me to not be a small government action. This is literally telling municipalities what they can and cannot do when it comes to their police force, which is interesting. Not saying that's good or bad, just just an observation that that is what this is. You know, so it's it's an interesting um, decision on the part of the legislature and, and on the legislature legislature and an interesting decision on the part of the governor as well. Right, and we also had the the governor kind of striking back and kind of cutting back on some funds for congressional staffing right. as well, which was oh yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about that okay. um, because I think that that is a fascinating thing that happened with the, so so our legislature, um, the the body right the the Senate and the House they have to pass they are mandated that they will pass a budget during the legislative session, during every legislative session. And so often when we get through the legislative session, one of the things, the first thing that you hear out of every politician's mouth, again, not saying this is good or bad, this is just, I've been, in, I've been reporting on politics for a long time, is we passed the most balanced budget we have ever passed. That is probably true every time. This time, 
that is not what you're hearing from our legislators because they're going back into a special session because they have to continue to talk about the budget because the governor vetoed, he has line item veto. So he can go through the budget and say, this is bad. We're taking this out immediately. We are not going to do this and we are not going to do that. He gets to go through that. That's his prerogative. And what he did was take away money for essentially legislative staffers. Um, Sorry, guys, you're the ones who are doing that research like we were so excited about earlier. Like, you know, we're so fascinated by um, Aaron and I both are. But, you know, pretty much said, yeah, that's that's we're not going to do that. And so when he called a special session, which is happening starting January, uh, July 8th, 8th, is that what they go Yeah, about? it's coming up um, When they, they, That's one of the things that they have to talk about. So you haven't heard people talk about the budget because that's something that they still have to iron out. It'll be an interesting case. And mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've read that in the Tribune that some of the, there are other issues that could come up in that special session that oh, yeah. maybe are maybe kind of grenades to lob over um, and just kind of waiting, particularly being in the summer now. Uh, the very beginning of the session, uh, I remember, and during the interim year, we're lucky that this uh, that COVID in some ways uh, hit during the interim year. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're not. Well, but yeah. it hit during the the interim year, um, which is the year that legislators typically use to evaluate what their legislative agendas are going to be in the upcoming uh, session and campaign and campaign. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> they they like to campaign. A lot of campaigning. Yeah, lots of campaigning. And uh, we also had a, a new Speaker of the House. Mm, Dave Phelan. Um, yes. And his, uh, his rise um, in many ways uh, might be attributed to the uh, to Bonin, uh, Secretary or Speaker Bonin's um, really weird exit. It was so odd. So and I know that you're about to talk more about this and, and I, I want to, I, I want to let you do that. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, speak. but I, but I think that, uh, Speaker Bonin, and when he when he left, so Bonin was in the previous legislative session. He was a one term Speaker of the House. This is very rare for the state of Texas. Often we have speakers who will sit in that chair for terms at a time um, for for very very long term. So when Bonin came around, and you'll remember for Price, who we've talked about a lot, was in the mix to be Speaker during the 86th legislative session. He made a good run at it. And I think there were, you know, I don't want to speak to exactly maybe what happened um, that he didn't get that nod, but Four Price has been, um, he's been a, a very influential person in the Texas House of Representatives. He is able to, um, he's able to draw a lot of people together. He's able to um, build consensus. Um, and so I think he was he was thought of as, not the heir apparent, but certainly someone who could do that job. That would have been huge for our area. Having the Speaker of the House be someone from here on the High Plains would be a massive get because your issues then are the issues that your area faces and that your constituents are in your ear about maybe get more play in the legislative session. That's the thought behind all of this. But Dennis Bonin was elected Speaker. And he was a one-term speaker, and he got caught on tape saying untoward things to a blogger. I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to call him a reporter. Okay. Um, but they they run a website that it has a definite slant, has a definite definite political agenda. Right. And so it's hard for me to call them a journalist because journalists don't do that. Are we talking about TPPF, the Texas Public Policy Foundation? 
no uh, well no (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) but they also obviously have a have a slant okay um okay i'm 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 on the i'm on a different page talk to me about the 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 journalist and the blogger because i thought for some reason this had to do in some ways he was secretly recorded by the by one of the whoever runs this uh i think we can both uh, kind of get together on the fact that this was a this is a a very uh, conservative-leaning uh, mm-hmm. policy foundation. Right. Yes. So maybe it is. I, I was thinking it was something else, but I think it is the Texas, uh, the yeah, TPPF. I think you're correct about that. Um. So I might not be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll have to fact check it. We'll, okay. We'll 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 put our interns on it uh, to fact check it. So yeah. So he gets caught on tape saying some things that are untoward, making some jokes that are off color. Um, and then those tapes are released and he doesn't recover from that. So Bonin not only, um, resigns his position as a member of the Texas house, he also then resigns, uh, from being speaker. Now, if you consider in the previous legislative session in the 86, there were thoughts, there were considerations, and there were talks about an additional special session because of, um, gun rights issues that our state was facing because we were in the wake of mass shootings, mass shooting after mass shooting. And, um, the, the one in Santa Fe, I think was, was formative for a lot of our legislators to consider this can and does happen here, you know? And so, so there was a lot of pressure to maybe call a special session and to deal with that. And, and I think the committee on uh, mass violence came out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a lot of pressure for that, but, but without a head of the house, without a person who is speaker, who is in good standing, who can lead and build consensus, uh, that did not happen last time. So Bonin's out failing, uh, feeling comes in this session. I, for price was interested. He talked to me a little bit about that on, on the record, um, about, you know, putting out feelers to see if maybe this would, this would be his, his legislative session to make a run at, at house speaker again. It didn't work out that way. Again, uh, Dade Phelan is the speaker of the house and it's just so fascinating to watch the long tail effects of having an upset, like not having a speaker at the end of that legislative session and what that's done for what that did in the 87th and what that might continue to do in the special session that's been called. Yeah. I mean, and especially with, uh, with for price, uh, being such a a massive advocate for public health, you know, access to health. He is a natural, he would have been such a natural fit. Um, kind of makes you wonder whether or not people, uh, wish, you know, the wish factor. Um, on the other hand, it's always uh, healthy to have in the news or to project an image in the news um, about this uh, contention going on between the lieutenant governor in the Senate and right. the Speaker of the House in Texas, because they're the one, if they don't want to get run over by the executive branch, uh, it's, the one, it's the one body that can stand up to them. Uh, and, and that's interesting in all in itself. And so I wonder what the consensus is or what, what, what the hostility or the contentious, uh, issues between, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick and, uh, and the, and, and, and Phelan really are, uh, and whether or not that's, uh, part of a part of the campaign, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a media, it's a media campaign. And I mean, it's interesting. So. I guess we'll have to we'll have to see. 
Um, the power dynamics of the of the Texas legislature. Yeah, it never ends. Uh, they they called that uh, scandal, by the way, um, the speaker and the creeper. Oh. <laughs> Um, anyway, I, I just found that in the times. Okay. Uh, so what was the, what's another one that you had? So I think maybe that all, you know, talking about the committee on mass violence is an interesting segue into talking about gun rights and talking mm-hmm. about second amendment rights. Something again, that the governor touted as a legislative success in the 87th session, um, saying expanding our second amendment rights was some, one of his, um, goals and one of the things that he's proud of, uh, which I think is interesting because, We've seen over the past few sessions, and I don't want to talk about the past few sessions too, too much, but um, continually as a, as a state, our access to and our ability to carry guns and carry them in the open and all weapons in, in the open and those kind of things have changed in the past couple of sessions, have expanded. And this session is is no different. Um, now the the licensing around weapons guns has changed dramatically or will change when laws go into effect um, and are enacted on September 1st. But, you know, will will change in that way. And I think that's an interesting response to the, the thing that our nation is dealing with generally, which is we do have mass shootings every week um, as a nation. We just do. It's just part of what happens in the United States? That's not saying one way or that another. That's just the statistics on it. Show us that this is happening. Mass shootings being six or more people are killed. Um, and that does happen. And so it's an interesting answer to that to say more people with less training, which is what will be achieved by the legislation that will be enacted um, here in the state. More people will have guns with less training um, surrounding them as well. And it's an interesting answer to dealing with reckoning with with the mass shootings that we deal with as a nation. Okay. Uh, so without asking whether or not uh, it's, it's good judgment to do that, I mean, they're kind of expanding some access to firearms. And uh, there were other bills that were out there that seemed to try to address some of the issues that were – being talked about and discussed by the Mass Violence Committee um, that was touring the state of Texas. Hey, well, that was that was the lords of the <laughs> of the Panhandle PBS FM ninety studios. Um, Amy Amy Hart uh, is uh, was being has been summoned. <laughs> uh, check out her podcast. Uh, check me out. A podcast for book lovers. Okay, we're back on Life in Bomb City. Okay, so the next thing that uh, that we were visiting about when we got uh, cut off by that commercial was the uh, the mass violence committee, the committee on mass violence that was touring the state of Texas and going from from you know big city to big city or city to city and and trying to visit with people about what they could do to help solve these and resolve these issues. One of the things that you just brought up was uh, that uh, there has been an expansion of uh, access to firearms by people who typically uh, in the past have relied on concealed and carry uh, permits. And uh, we've seen that as as kind of popularly known as uh, constitutional carry. I'm curious to know, like some of the more uh, the mental health aspects of those, 
um, not so much in the hands of, uh, of not addressing, without addressing that policy specifically, but rather addressing it as something that the, mass, the Committee on Mass Violence was, was thinking about and tabling uh, and discussing with communities um, about educating uh, young people on what to look for when somebody looks like they want to commit an act of violence or uh, they want to maybe or potentially are thinking about committing suicide, uh, what to look for when and who to contact. I mean, it's not just, hey, 1-800-1888, you know, suicide prevention or whatever the, whatever the case may be, uh, the hotline. Uh, but also, where do you go and, and how do you do that? Um, one of the things that came out of that uh, conversation was uh, this uh, active shooter security alert system. Um, and I, I think this is going to end up playing out effective September the 1st, um, that we'll have something on our phones that not unlike the DPS... Um, Amber Alert. Amber Alerts or the DPS, uh, we have a, you know, an officer that's been shot um, and we, were, we are looking for the perpetrator... This will have up-to-date information about active shooter events. I believe it was notably named after the youngest uh, person mm-hmm. that was killed in Midland, Odessa mm-hmm. um, at that, uh, that tragic event. Uh, but it, it also highlights the, the prevalent need and maybe some of the thinking demonstrated by what they, were, what they were finding out about the red flags and about some of the other things that make people um, pray rather than uh, informed about how to, how to maneuver, how to think about uh, getting out of those situations. And, of course, we don't, ever, we don't walk in thinking that that's the situation we're going to get in. We get into it or we are in it and we don't realize it. Uh, and so maybe, maybe those, some of those allowances will save lives. Um, I, I just, I don't, I'm curious to know how far policy can go mm. on that and what, what limits, this is one of those, those questions that will live on in perpetuity in our country, which is, you know, how far do you go uh, while continuing to uh, respect the, uh, the rights of, of a, a, a group of people and citizens that are incredibly passionate about issues that... Uh, Issues of, of personal property and preference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. How do we square as a nation? I think we're all reckoning with this. How do we square as a nation the Second Amendment, which obviously is is a keystone of our democracy. It's it's something that you know that we've built a lot of legislation around. How do we square that with the fact of these tragedies that are happening? Again, every every week we're we're seeing these things. How do we square those things? And I don't envy our legislators for having to figure that out. Right, it'll be interesting to find out, and I guess we'll probably find uh, more of this in uh, next year's interim. Uh, but there were a lot of uh, things that got left out of I think some of the recommendations for that, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think pandemic probably had a lot to do with that as well. See, and I think going into the 87th legislative session prior, you know, after, after the 86th, it was kind of like, we know what's going to happen in the 87th. We know gun legislation is going to be the major topic. And then we had a global pandemic that threw everything off kilter, you know? And so those, those issues are still relevant and still something that we have to deal with that we maybe didn't get to 
implement that we didn't get to pay as much attention to during this legislative session um, as we would have without the the pandemic. The pandemic just messed everything up as far as, you know, what the goals were in, in this session, I think. Yeah. I hate you, COVID-19. Yeah, that, that was uh, something that I think uh, we can all, uh, I don't know if that hashtag, it was, it was, uh, you remember the thanks Obama hashtag? Yes. I remember that, I mean, they were the chief scapegoat. Well, that was not necessarily, maybe it was the president and covid and I don't, who knows what, give me a break. But us sitting here uh, in 2021 in July, you know, five feet from each other without masks on. Thank you, science. Here we are. Yeah. We're, we're getting through. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> um, we had a major uh, uh, energy event, mm-hmm. an electricity event. Did you have anything on that? Absolutely. Okay. So I definitely want to talk about that because I think that there's a lot of confusion among my viewers and among people who... Um, or maybe paying attention to this adjacently and not, you know, complete and total wonks like you and I are and dealing with all of this every every day and considering, you know, all of these implications of this uh, legislation. But that became a goal of of the governor at the beginning-ish, uh, few, first few weeks of the session because the state had this massive energy crisis where hundreds of people died, very sadly, because we had this massive cold front come through, Arctic air that was last, that lasted the five-ish days, and people were without power, and they were trying to warm themselves in a lot of different ways that were not healthy. Um, and and unfortunately, a lot of people lost their lives because of this. So, so the governor's response to that was, this is now a legislative priority, and we are going to figure out how to fix ERCOT, right? And here in the Texas Panhandle, most of us are not on ERCOT. Most of us did not lose power for a sustained amount of time like our friends in South Texas did. Um, my, I have family who live in Abilene and, and that area, and their experience was drastically different than my experience during that. I lost power like twice uh, for like 45 minutes, and they were losing power for days at a time. You know, and that's it's a massive difference, and they're right down the road. But so, so the the high plains, most of us here uh, were on the Southwest Power Pool and not on ERCOT. And so, for us to say, yeah, it was cold, and we, you know, that was kind of a bummer. But it's so important to the rest of our massive state um, that these legislative issues um, went through. And did anything come of it? Did did are there actual changes and in policy that will keep that from happening again? I think that's an open question at this point. Right. I mean, how often does the, does an Arctic freeze happen in Texas? Is I mean, it, it doesn't happen very often. Right. On the other hand, um, maybe the, the weatherization issue of uh, electricity production um, maybe was something that reform that needed to be taken place. I think they were taking the budget or some of the funds out of the out of the rainy day mm-hmm. um, fund, and I don't know if that's still happening or not. Do you have any? Any idea? Okay. I'm not sure how they're... It's like $2 billion dollars or something. So, so we went into the session with the largest rainy day fund we've ever had. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if they said, this is something that needs to happen. Where can we take that money from? And said, oh, look, we have this rainy day fund. We can borrow some of that to to do this um, and, and keep people safe during an event like this and update our infrastructure. Everything is about infrastructure. We've talked about ports to planes. We've talked about, you know, <laughs> all of this stuff. It's so, so important. It sounds so boring, but these things are really, 
um, really matter, especially during events like what we had in February. Right. And we have an engine that's helping out and propel this kind of seeming stagnant, stagnant issue over the last 20 to 30 years where we've seen our infrastructure kind of start to, to have some uh, cracks and crannies in it. Uh, and this kind of cr- really creates a demand and a need that's something that's driven by that drives politicians to do things it's based off that incentive system which is unemployment you know that being a major issue going in uh to this session as a result of some of the other issues uh created by the 2020 events um maybe um also will help out with uh the unemployment issues and but also creates this this real demand for for those types of things, um, including, I mean, including the weatherization um, and the electricity production it also drives a really, another complex issue. Like we need, as if, and we're just scraping the surface yeah. of what uh, policymakers do and, and decision makers at that level. It's easy to, it's really easy to snipe, um, as uh, as they say on the West Wing, snipe uh, on, on Meet the Press. Um, <laughs> but the the more difficult thing to do is is to sit down, evaluate why people are making some of the decisions they're making, and stop assuming that that they're driven purely by incentives um, that are that are for their own gain. And sitting down and thinking, okay, well, if they say that this is not what I think it is, I want to listen to what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And taking the time, having the patience to listen to people and other people uh, who are coming to them with problems, and uh, that that other complex issue is that is the issue of of energy production and where that energy is coming from. Because mm-hmm. we had a national election, and Texas is part of a federal system, we have uh, funding that is not only from Texas but also international agreements that the state of Texas doesn't cannot, from a sovereign perspective, deal with, needs the federal government to help it prop it up. In 2020, had a president that was very pro-energy independence um, and, and, and Texas being a major part of that plan to the next year having that taken away again. And that sense of, of, of loss, maybe disempowerment, disenfranchisement, and the major uh, issue of job insecurity that that creates uh, from natural gas and uh, the oil industries uh, just cannot be ignored. And so, I'm I'm very interested to see what you know what ends up happening out of that reliability being the main issue. And I see a lot of potential for conflict going on between the federal government and the state governments. Um, in the upcoming years, not that we've had a, a, a lack of it in the past, but an increase in it um, over this idea of, of, of purely energy and, and what we do with, with oil and gas and, and liquefied natural gas being brought into the ports and, you know, re put it, put into our pipelines. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes of that engine mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, around around the Texas Panhandle, this is this is part of who we are. We can't have. I mean, if you talk to people in the in this business, they'll say that reliability is is king. It's the standard in oil and gas or in in electricity. 
Yeah, and it, yeah. oil and gas are are, are incredibly, um, you know, the they're two of the hallmarks of of what I guess we would consider to be uh, the the raw materials needed to help the power plants generate the, the electricity that it then packages and sends out to the rest of the country. And whether it's renewables, and we've prided ourselves on being ahead of the curve, Rick Perry's 2020 initiative mm-hmm. um, went above and beyond what we were expecting um, and what we had set as a goal uh, for those renewable energies. Uh, but now that we have them, we're kind of starting to see some of the other issues that kind of co-occur with doing things ahead of time, which is that the cost and maintenance of those uh, products, um, mainly, namely the uh, uh, the windmills and turbines, Wind turbines. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. and uh, and of course our the solar panels um, taking hits and being insured. Uh, I I have a feeling that this is just kind of the beginning of, of a new chapter. Maybe I think not in a in a in a very long book. Mm-hmm. So maybe. Dostoevsky should have taken this one up. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that, you know, when when people think that they want to go into local government or state government and they start to run for these offices and they realize more than one person who has been newly elected has told me um, on record and off record, it's like drinking out of a hose, like a fire hose, like figuring out how nuanced these issues are because you think you look at an issue and you're like, well, flip the switch back on. That is so not what this is, right? Because, because you look at it in in, in a practical non political junkie sort of way. And you're like, fix it, just fix it. And it's so nuanced. There's so many other things that you have to consider um, when you consider those issues and making sure that people have literally power that is, is saving lives and making sure that people um, can survive through events like what we had in February. So it's a very high stakes sort of thing to consider. Not only are jobs super important, but also when you're considering moving natural gas, moving those products, going back to ports to planes, we've got to have the infrastructure in place to get those places, th- those things to places safely and to not affect the environment along the way and to not cause more harm to people who live in these communities where that stuff is passing through. So you've got to think about all of those things continually. You know, it's there, it's a so, so many layered uh, issue that again, I'll say this a couple of more times, I'm sure during this podcast, I don't envy uh, these legislators for having to think about all of those things all at once. Man, but wow. If you're an intellectually curious person, Mm -hmm. This is the place, That's right? It's true. Um, so uh, do we want to talk about um, hospitals? Absolutely. By the way, to go to jump back real quick, Excel Energy, got to give them a big shout out for the 2050 carbon-free initiative that they have set forth, not carbon-free, carbon capture-free, really, initiative. Um, as Wes uh, Reeves pointed out to me, we're, we're made of carbon, so we don't want it to be carbon-free. Um, but... Uh, you know that's that's one thing that uh, I think we can we can go ahead and just kind of celebrate together as a community that we have a very forward looking uh, energy company and there's um, there's so many different other players and stakeholders in that decision making process but um, that's a that's a fantastic thing uh, and they're 
thinking about reliability every single day. We have NERC, the National National Electric Liability Commission, and ERCOT, and all these other their reliability concerned. And I, once again, it's easy to throw these rocks. Um, but uh, but uh, how often does these do these do some of these things happen? And do we want to fail safe it across the board and you know create these uh, maintenance costs that? are going to be ongoing forever and ever and ever. It was kind of the question of the wall back in the day. I am 2016, right? Is, Still the question of the wall. How right. do we pay for this? How many, yeah. How are we going to pay for it? And how are we going to upkeep it? It right. wasn't so much even like the, the initial cost, but the upkeep over a period of 30 years. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all right. Um, so if you don't, if you like lower taxes, always be looking down the road. It's the Mothman uh, prophecy stuff, you know. Um, but anyway, all right. Um, do we want to talk about exempting hospitals from lawsuits, SB6? I think absolutely. Okay. Um, what would you like to say about it? I just think it's a fascinating, you know, what I'll say is obviously during the pandemic, we all had a new appreciation for our healthcare heroes and deservedly so. Um People on the front lines, certainly of hospitals, not only doctors, nurses, researchers, respiratory techs, but janitors and and people who were, you know, at every single level of our healthcare system showed how important they are. And so that that's what I want to say about about our hospitals and and how important they they are, especially here in Amarillo. They're one of our top employers uh, for our region. Uh, we have a robust medical community and. I don't think it's political of me to say that they did an incredible job during 2020 and they worked so hard and all of the praise and all of the bonuses and all of the the food that was given to them and all of every single thing is well-deserved for all of those people. And they came together in a really incredible way during the pandemic to help us through it. Um, And, and I'm, I am constantly in awe of our medical community. And so I think that this topic is an interesting um, sort of divergence from from that in a way. Yeah, uh, it's going to be kind of, uh, we, we had and we get, we saw this after some other major national, um, I think we could call healthcare certainly uh, it falls within the realm of national security. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's no question about the fact the potential for for you know a a bug to disrupt and dismantle you know the the whole economy the shut shutting it down uh for a prolonged period of time periods of time the unknowing of and i think this was the big thing with covid was we were waiting for information for a long time and of course science takes time so good science takes time uh Bad science you can kind of make make up as you go, or weird science um, particularly. But that movie was did not end with the way I mean the way that those two guys thought it was going to. Um, however, uh, it does create kind of this this other looming question about you know can we get so um, laser focused on accomplishing and, and dealing with one issue? We we saw this after nine eleven that we that some of the other issues kind of have to go by the wayside. We saw recently uh, saw the passing of uh, Donald Rumsfeld, former Secretary of Defense. Rest in peace. Um, and 
they saw the oversaw the transformation of the United States military from uh, not just being this mammoth, hard to mobilize group, but more of an expeditionary nature and very fast and lethal. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. I'm not equating the two, right? Um, one is you're not militarizing hospitals. No, and <laughs> probably shouldn't be done. But um, at the same time, it it asks an interesting question. I think. I think it demands us to at least consider and think about what will what comes next for hospitals. You know, and they're kind of thinking along down the line of what exactly could be some of the unintended consequences of being so laser focused on one issue and getting as much information as we can so we can save as many lives as we can. Do we, what did we miss during this period where all of us were mobilized for one other mission? So this SB6 kind of had, does, does some things, some things for exempting hospitals from lawsuits as long as they were acting in good faith during the pandemic. Um, it's a major, probably a, I, th- I think it would be under, um, understating things to say that this is a very important uh, piece of legislation for uh, healthcare workers and for these uh, really big hospitals in uh, every metro area that, that dealt with this on a major level and saw surges. I think it's also interesting to consider, uh, you know, from a national security standpoint, like you said, more statistically more people were using healthcare services during the pandemic more of us were sick more of us needed it and so more of our information was being stored in various places well that made us vulnerable to attacks and it happened and it happened major hospitals were hacked hospitals here in amarillo were hacked and and all of their information their patient database was locked down at some point and we had to go back to you know, our our nurses and doctors had to go back to charting by hand, which has not happened in a long, long time. There were, there are generations of nurses who have not ever done that, who were, who were telling me that they had to try and do that and like figure it out along the way. But that was, that was what became, you know, one of the safer ways to keep everybody on on the same page, literally on the same page by having a page Um, and going back to that and reverting back to that kind of old style of, of doing things. And so then that information is more at risk for some, and I'm not saying that this happened. I have no reports of this happening. We have not reported on this at all. But when you have a paper trail of somebody's health information, then that opens you up to risk in that way as well, an old school risk of, you know, somebody turning that page over and learning things about patients that maybe are not public knowledge. Or where does that paper go after, you know, obviously it's shredded, it's taken care of, it's, you know, there are responsible people in the healthcare field who are making sure that that information is safeguarded. But all of that information being online does open us up to that, that sort of attack. Um, And so interesting to think in those terms of we have more information about people and our healthcare in our healthcare system housed in servers around the world and, and here in Amarillo and here in Texas. And so how do we keep that safe? And is, is HB6 a part of doing that to make sure that hospitals are empowered to make those decisions, those snap judgments that they need to make to treat their patients the best that they can to literally save lives? You know, and, and that's, I think, one of, the, what, one of the goals was of HB6. Hmm. I, yeah. So EHRs or electronic health records and the, I remember the High Tech Act of 2009 mm-hmm. taking place, oh, uh, particularly when 
it happened to be going on at the same time that we were having a national discussion about it, the Affordable Care Act. So it kind of, it kind of went by without people being like really knowledgeable of it, of the full ramifications of it. Now, I mean, we've transitioned, we've made the transition since 2009. They phased it out, um, I think over a period of six to eight years. It may have been six years, but there were penalties up until a certain point. And now healthcare providers do have to create these electronic health records. As you said, um, those paper records, as much as we don't like trusting electronic transmission, um, it can be even more problematic perhaps um, for identity theft reasons and other things. It's one thing, and this is going to sound really strange, I don't, because it speaks to a place of ignorance. And I want to make clear that I'm speaking from a place of ignorance when I say this. I don't know what foreign countries do with our with our our information when they when they uh, acquire it when they get these big acquisitions of passwords or you know the health uh, status of of our the big dirts of our uh, population. I I. I think we have a better idea and can speculate a little bit more specifically when we think about, you know, swiping your credit card at you know, Best Buy and somebody like going click with their camera and clicking it, you know, and, and finding out what the card is and, you know, maybe the security thing on the back, you know, whether or not that's something that we deal with. And then, you know, you see those purchases on Amazon that are outrageous um, made by somebody, you know, across the country you know, if you traveled recently, things like that. But what are the accountability standards and how do we deal with those when some of the transmission goes state between overstate lines? Because it becomes a federal issue and the limits. So uh, giving, to give an example, my son got sick um, in, uh, we were in Missouri and our son got sick and oh my gosh, he, we went in and they were able to pull his health record up, boom, immediately. It was incredible. I didn't think that it was going to be as wonderful as it was. I'm kind of a skeptic of um, of anything that expands anything at first, you know. Um, but I think I think I'm a cynic. <laughs> Is it okay to say that? I mean, you, you live in the world of politics, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> right, that's true. But anyway. Um, it's just kind of a sad thing to have to say. I'm very, I'm very cynical and, and and untrusting, but at the same time, that that doctor was able to pull that that record up immediately. It was very handy, you know, not unlike a you know your your iPhone. On the other hand, she pulled. We were in another state, and she pulled it up like his whole medical record right then and there. She started just spouting off all these medical facts about him, and we were like, wow. That was inc- that's incredible. That's just sitting sitting out there, and you know that was the 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 big kind of what one of the the detractors. And of course, medical professionals, I think by and large, were highly supportive of the High Tech Act of two thousand nine. Um, it does so many things to make things more efficient, and anything that makes more things more efficient, particularly in a competitive system in a free market, we should probably get behind because it's. You know, that's how the free market works, uh, is efficiency. On the other hand, we do have this other thing about security. And if you can't secure it, what do you do with it? Uh, so, yeah, we did. We had we had some hacking that went on during uh, during this period of time. 
it's not new. We know that we have um, our our we have facilities all over uh, our country that have, that are hacked uh, constantly, mm-hmm. um, and there's always the potential on any given day at any given hour um, that that uh, there's going to be some type of a breach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are always prodding for weaknesses. I mean, foreign actors from uh, from all over the world, uh, including including states that are allies um, or states that we consider to share interests with us. Um, so that's an interesting thing. Without going into um, more detail, that and speculating about what happens with uh, with our data once it once it's done, are they is there a collection of of information? I mean, we're not going to go and I don't think anyway. Um, Typically the DOD responds and the Department of State responds to things like that, not individual private citizens. And I think we have people like Dan Crenshaw in the U.S. Congress who was trying to to introduce legislation that would allow Americans to uh, to sue the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, for for hiding some of these things and allowing us to prepare um, at the very, very beginning. I don't know how far any of that stuff will go. Uh, maybe it's time for you to talk. I, go. <laughs> I, I will cap all of that off. I, I think that particularly surveillance, particularly um, those sort of data gathering um, practices that nations engage in, um, all nations engage in in one way or another. You asked, I don't know what happens with your information when you when you when this information becomes um, available to uh, somewhere. You know when it becomes available to another state or entity or or nation. Um, knowledge is power, right? And so when you can find things about um, people who live in a certain place, a certain area. Um, having that knowledge can take you down a lot of different rabbit holes in in your um, in your head about all the terrible things that can happen about that. Um, so yes, protect your information, update your password. If you haven't done that lately, that would be my advice on all of that. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Uh, so well, that's that's pretty much all we we're going to talk about today. I think we could talk about this fairly um, five six hours, um, maybe longer than that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if legislators couldn't talk about all of this and get all of this done in their regular session, so much so that they have to have a special session, um, you know, we could talk about it for certainly at least that long. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, okay, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on and visiting with us about some of the different uh, issues uh, surrounding the 87th Texas legislature, um, hoping that uh, in uh, a couple of years when we're dealing with the 88th, Uh, you will be willing to come back on again and uh, do a little uh, debrief again. Um, And so thank you so much for everybody, uh, everybody tuning in and listening. I appreciate it. And uh, Beth should be back next time. Thank you.